The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... Learn about the Reading Rights Coalition and get a fall fashion review for men. Welcome to ACB Reports, September 2010. I'm Jay Doudna for Mike Duke, who is currently playing the role of Sneezy. About a year ago, the American Council of the Blind and the National Federation of the Blind filed a lawsuit against Arizona State University over the school's use of an electronic book reader, which was inaccessible for blind and low-vision students. As this lawsuit developed, a cross-disability group known as the Reading Rights Coalition was formed. Attorney Daniel Goldstein explained the founding and purpose of the Reading Rights Coalition. As some of you may know, I've been representing the National Federation of Blind for close to a quarter of the century, and over the last 12 years have focused particularly on the question of access to uh, digital information. And in February of 2009, something very unusual occurred, which was that the NFB, the ACB, and 30 other organizations involving print disabilities got together in the Reading Rights Coalition. I'm going to talk to you a little bit today about why that happened and where we are and where we're headed. As to why it happened, the gratuitous inability to access this huge storehouse of intellectual property that the rest of the world is coming to have at the touch of a fingertip. That's what you call a severe handicap. And that's why these groups got together to combat it. The other aspect of ebooks that is unusual and critical is not just the storehouse of information they represent, but also a significant, maybe seismic shift in the way that we think about alternative techniques and assistive technology. What do I mean by that? Well, at the beginning of 2010, there were 350,000 Kindle books. That number is nearly double today. NLS can add 2,000 accessible books a year. So the need to have access, mainstream access, because that's where the capital is, that's where it's all happening. The need to have mainstream access is a very different thing than what we've talked about in the past. So in some ways, it's moving away from separate with all its strengths and weaknesses. And with gratitude to NLS, to Bookshare, to RFB&D, to all of the folks who make separate assistive technologies, we're looking at access to Apple and Google and Amazon and what it means to have mainstream access. And there will be both good and bad in that movement, just as there was good and bad in terms of the impact on African-American businesses when integration finally started to happen. It's going to have similar kind of economic consequences, I suspect, for some of the specialized suppliers that we've dealt with in the past. So what's the history of this campaign? What battles have we won and where are we going? In 1988, George Kersher invented the e-book as an accessibility device. And then we waited and we waited and we waited for the mainstream technology world to see it as a mainstream device. And there were various attempts and fits and starts. And then in November of 2007, the first Kindle came out. 
and it had no text-to-speech at all, but it was an immediate hit. So in February of 2008, George Kersher, myself, Ann Taylor from the uh, International Braille and Technology Center at the National Federation of Blind, and Yvonne Lagasse from HumanWare went to see the product development team at Amazon. And as George eloquently put it, he said, look, you got to do two things to make the Kindle accessible. you got to make the menus talk, and you have to make the text talk. And that technology has been around forever. And if you make the text talk, you will make lots and lots of money because a businessman who's uploaded the stuff he needs for his meeting on the Kindle doesn't finish on the plane, hops in his rental car, and what does he do? He switches over to the text-to-speech to finish listening to what he needs for his meeting. And the parent of every dyslexic kid in the country starts screaming at the IEP hearing for a Kindle for their kid because if they can see and hear the text at the same time, it will make a difference in how they learn to read. And then all the other kids say, wait a minute, why am I lugging around a 50-pound backpack when that kid's got everything in that little Kindle? And you get to do what Apple does so brilliantly, which is to capture the pediatric market when they're still in diapers and make them customers for life. Unfortunately, Amazon heard that second part about all the money that was to be made in having text-to-speech for the content, went to Nuance Communications, who all of you know know how to make menus talk. They do it for all the phones, right? And only hired them to make the text talk. And in February of 2009, the Kindle 2 came out, and the Authors Guild and the Association of American Publishers went ape and said, you got to turn off this text-to-speech, we didn't license it, we haven't agreed to it, and we're not going along with it. And Amazon called up and said, well, okay, we messed up. Because if we'd done it right, then we could say we did it for the blind and they couldn't scream at us. But we didn't because we didn't make the menus talk. But if text-to-speech is turned off, you guys are really in bad shape, so you have to come to our defense. You can imagine the two words I wanted to say. So we decided that what we had to do was a couple of things. First of all, if we went and fought on behalf of Amazon to keep the text-to-speech, the obvious rejoinder was, we don't get it. You can't use this. You're blind. Why are you fighting for this? So we formed a coalition that included all the other print disability groups, the dyslexics, the folks with cerebral palsy, the folks with upper spinal cord injuries, and on and on and on, as well as, as you know, a cross-blindness group of NFB, ACB, AFB, because the battle was simply too important. And we had two goals. One was to keep the text-to-speech turned on, and the other was, the minute we had the chance to do it, to stick it to Amazon over the Kindle. By March of this year, the Reading Rights Coalition, the Authors Guild, and the Association of American Publishers agreed on a joint statement, the gist of which is that whenever a book is available in other than print, that version of the book must be accessible. Kareem Dale released that statement on the White House blog, which helped to give it some additional uh, visibility. And it's being widely but not universally respected. 
Not universally, because uh, I can tell you that on the Kindle, the text-to-speech is still turned off on all Random House books and all Simon & Schuster books. Interestingly, Simon & Schuster books are on the iPad, and they are accessible on the iPad. Random House has not yet signed a deal on the iPad, but if they do, then we'll have access of Random House books too. In April 2009, the Kindle DX comes out, and there's an announcement of a pilot program with six colleges and universities. And a decision was made by the board of the ACB and the board of the NFB to join together in a lawsuit along with an ACB member who was a student at Arizona State University, Darrell Shandro, and I had the privilege of being the lawyer, and indeed it was a privilege. We also filed complaints on behalf of the Reading Rights Coalition against the other five schools, Reed, Pace, Case Western Reserve, Princeton, University of Virginia. And all but one of those complaints, uh, the one against the University of Virginia, which is in the jurisdiction of the Department of Education, are now resolved. The Department of Justice reached settlements with all of those schools that required them to forego using any inaccessible ebook reader. And defined accessibility, as we did, by the way, in our settlement with Arizona State, in terms that I think are important and can live beyond any changes in technology. That is to say, accessibility is defined in those settlements as all information and all transactions that are available to sighted people have to be available to the print disabled with a substantially equivalent ease of use. All information and all transactions. Two weeks ago, the Department of Justice and the Department of Education released a letter that was sent to all of the colleges and universities in this country. And by the way, when we had uh, filed those complaints, the Reading Rights Coalition sent a letter to 1,800 colleges and universities and the attorney generals of all 50 states saying using inaccessible e-book readers and inaccessible content is a violation of Title II and Title III and Section 504. But government's caught up with us, and at the end of uh, June, a letter went out over the Department of Education, Department of Justice uh, signatures to all colleges and universities, telling all of them that the use of inaccessible ebook reading devices is a violation of the law, and they must not do it. I can't take credit for all of this. I have to tell you, part of this is coming from a truly invigorated Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. They are open for business. Melanie and Eric Bridges and I have now had two major meetings with the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice, and they are definitely uh, interested in being partners with the entire disability community, and they want to hear from us what needs to be done. Isn't that refreshing? So, where do we stand on other things? Well, Adobe Digital Editions is inaccessible, and the Reading Rights Coalition got the American Library Association last summer to adopt a resolution 
that libraries should not purchase and lend out inaccessible e-books. And then the Los Angeles Public Library agreed to and did publicly announce that they were stopping purchasing Adobe Digital Editions and would not resume until Adobe Digital Editions were accessible. It didn't take Adobe very long to announce that they're working on an accessible version of Adobe Digital Editions. They say December of this year. My guess is January or February of next year, but they're really working on it. And as I understand it, the default will be that text-to-speech is turned on, and I believe that it will also be the case that, even if it's not, that Adobe Digital Editions will be compatible with screen access software, so either way, we get the books. We've been talking with Adobe InDesign team. They're the ones who do the layout for publishers. And Adobe InDesign is used for all kinds of e-books, not just Adobe digital books, about building in validation tools so that publishers can see how accessible the content is as they build the content electronically. And of course, Apple came out with the accessible iPad this summer with accessible iBooks. A history of that is that uh, in 2007, I paired with the Massachusetts Attorney General to go after iTunes U, which is now accessible, and iTunes, which is now accessible, as a result of working with the Mass AG. And I think that the good folks in Apple really did get the message because they've been doing pretty well since then. Supposedly, we're going to see an accessible Kindle next month. Please don't hold your breath, but we'll see. And this summer, we're going to see the Blio, which is going to be a free download software ebook reader for any platform you want, mobile or otherwise, laptop or computer or otherwise, that's meant for both the blind and the sighted, and that will have its own self-voicing software, but also will be compatible with screen access software. So again, if the publishers turn off the text-to-speech, they'll still be accessible. I've seen it demonstrated, and it's really cool. Google Books, we don't know what's going to happen with the settlement yet, but if the settlement gets approved, and the settlement was strongly supported by both the NFB and the ACB, We're talking about 10 million out-of-print but in-copyright books being accessible within five years of the settlement. In three or four years, we're not going to see print versions of textbooks at college and university level. They're going to be gone. They're going to be gone because the publishers of post-secondary textbooks want them to be gone. They are getting killed by the used textbook market. They get killed by the printing costs. They get killed by the warehousing costs. And they're going digital faster than we're going to see any other kind of book go digital. But the content of those books is going to be more complex than anything we've ever seen before. There are going to be embedded videos. There are going to be practice tests that are interactive. There are going to be demonstrations that are going to be interactive. There are going to be hyperlinks to who knows what It's going to be text unlike we ever thought of print books being text. And it's a challenge to make sure that as this happens, that 
we don't see once again blind students being left behind. So where are we on that? Well, the largest distributor of ebooks at that level is a company called CoreSmart, which has been invested in by the big six textbook publishers. CoreSmart did not start out terribly interested in being accessible. Indeed, their books were essentially image PDFs. But they have had a change of heart with a little urging. <laughs> and uh, I expect that if everything stays on track, that before the beginning of the first semester of this year, that is fall of 2010, CoreSmart Books will work with the Mac. And by January, CoreSmart Books will work with PCs. We have challenges ahead with the complex content. George Kirscher and the DAISY Consortium, the International Digital Publishing Forum, are working hard on developing standards to address how to make some of these more complex forms of content accessible. There are obviously some folks who don't get it yet, like the Sony Reader. There are challenges with the Department of Education. We need to get across to them that when they make grants to develop digital instructional materials, that a condition of the grant should be that the end product be accessible. We need to get them to stop putting the blind in the special ed box on this issue when this is about mainstream access. And we need to get to the point that all digital content is accessible not only so that it can be accessed through text-to-speech software, but so that it can be accessed as a Braille file and then get rid of NIMAC. This has been a battle that has needed every ounce of ingenuity, capital, and energy that the Reading Rights Coalition can bring to it. It has been, I have to tell you, an extraordinary privilege and a great honor to have assisted in this fight. And it's been a privilege and an honor to have had both the ACB and the NFB as clients. We're not done, and I'm not going to leave this battle till we are, and I look forward to the day, the not-too-distant day, when every person in this room can get the same book at the same time and the same price as everyone else. Thank you. Daniel Goldstein was recorded during the opening session of the annual conference and convention of the American Council of the Blind in Phoenix, Arizona. She wears tan shoes with pink shoelaces, a polka dot vest, and man, oh man, he wears tan shoes with pink shoelaces, and a big Panama with a purple hat band. Well, guys, it takes more than tan shoes and pink shoelaces to be properly attired during this fall season. Lynn Cooper from the Mirrors Project provides us with information to help us look outstanding rather than simply standing out. We go on and on about women's because, let's face it, a woman can wear slacks, a woman can wear a dress, a woman can wear a skirt, a woman can wear a jumpsuit, a woman can wear anything, really but not so much for you fellas. And so the changes seem that they move at a glacially slow pace, 
the fact is there is change indeed, and it is in the details. And we may have shared this already, but there is a very famous architect by the name of Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, and he said God is in the details, meaning the importance is in those details. So menswear has nowhere near the variety of acceptable options, but within the accepted realm, we must pay attention to those little details, and therein lies the challenge. What we're going to talk about first off are just a few of the big trends that we see on the runway. Suits remain very slim, very close to the body, and they are two-button. I remember maybe five years ago, everything was three buttons or four buttons, you know, with a very shallow, as they say, gutter. That means where your buttons start up on top. Now it's two buttons, and in some cases, even single button. And what I'm noticing, especially for maybe industries like banking or fashion industries or very, very formal events, a two-button, very slim business suit with a vest underneath and a matching fabric. In slacks, once again reflective of what we're seeing in women's wear, the 1960s is very big. Flat front, fellas, caput on the pleats, flat front makes gentlemen look slimmer and it is much more au courant. Narrow, very 1960s for casual and dress slacks. So we're seeing this in everything from jeans to khakis or corduroy, which is really a big fabric, a very subtle, either crushed whale or narrow, very thin whale corduroy. And corduroy adds texture, and we're seeing it in some colors. Once again, this is fashion forward, but we're seeing them in those jewel tones. And what I mean by crushed whale is if you go to a store and ask to feel corduroy, it's gauged by the width of the whale, and the whale is that little rib that is on the corduroy. And of course, wide whale is a wide rib of fabric that you can feel with your fingers. And narrow whale is, as you can imagine, narrow. And then a crushed whale is almost toward like a velvet. And that's really big. But we have to be very concerned when we wear corduroy because when you sit on it for any amount of time, that is going to crush the whale and that will be noticeable and it'll look worn out. What we're also seeing is just at the ankle without a break where traditionally a men's dress pant breaks on the top of the shoe a wee bit. Now, this is very fashion forward. So, gentlemen, if we're in a kind of a conservative industry or we're applying to work in one, forget that. And jeans, very current, is to be all the way from light wash to dark indigo unwashed but they look like they are lived in. It's very, very important that they look like they're lived in. They're not terribly, terribly tight. And a little roll. Just take your bottom of your jeans and just roll them once. That's very, very current. Thinner ties. We're not going to the string ties of the uh, 80s, but minimally thinner. And, Mike, a real big look for men is denim shirts. Now, denim worn you know, once again, we have to make sure the industry we're in, actual denim shirts with a necktie under a suit and chambray. It looks like denim, but it is a cotton fabric uh, shown a lot in men's dress shirts. It's primarily light blue, but the threads are white and blue woven together. So it reads as kind of that like light jean fabric, light denim. So a denim shirt is a definite investment whether it be a thick traditional denim or any thickness all the way up to chambray. That's always a good piece to have. A tweed jacket or sport coat, tailored or relaxed, we're seeing a lot of them in real chunky fabrics. And that's kind of nice because you don't have to tailor it so much. It's just, you know, throw it on over a sweater and a shirt or what have you, and you're on your way. Cardigan sweater vests, 
very big, kind of a nice look under a suit, under a sport coat, and then also brightly colored V-neck sweaters. And that's kind of a fun way, whether you're going with khakis or jeans and a dress shirt or a plaid shirt, just to throw on a V-neck sweater, but not to go with a subdued, a black, a navy, or a gray, but to pull in a little color. Once again, you needn't spend a lot of money. J.C. Penney's in the Gap, Target. Plaid shirts, we've been seeing them for years, whether in a dress, with a tie, or casual. And just like in women's wear, we're seeing a very minimalistic approach in coats, sleek and slim. What I'm noting, Mike, in coats for women and men, almost no trench coats. Now, please do not give away, throw away, or donate your trench coats. You must keep them. They are classic. The tan, Burberry-ish trench coat is a must. They never go out of style. But I think it goes back to that minimalist approach. We're not seeing a lot of trench coats. We're seeing more single-breasted, sleek, narrow coats in uh, camel for men and women. Hair, two essential looks for men, either the schoolboy look or the rocker. Now, the schoolboy would be, for instance, a part on the side and uh, combed over, pretty much uh, straight. The rocker is short on the sides and a lot of hair in front and pulled to the face. Full body on top. It's kind of fun. Shoes, we're seeing a lot of wingtips. Those are those big kind of chunky lace-up shoes that probably every one of our fathers wore at some point. And the wingtip actually refers to the top stitching. There's a little panel that comes to almost a wing pattern in the front of the shoe, and there's little holes, and and there's a lot of detailing on a wingtip, but that's very old-fashioned, kind of men's clubby, you know, 1950s, 1960s, and those are very big, and young men are wearing them with jeans and what have you. It's kind of a fun, irreverent look, and once again, they can be found in every price point. When a look is big, Mike, it is translated a lot, because not everybody is going to be able to a four to three hundred dollar pair, so a lot of variety in your price points. And Oxfords, which is a sleeker tie up, and those are very nice for a, a suit. Eyeglasses, the aviator style remains big with the wire frames. Those are for sunglasses, but for eyeglasses, just like in women's, that kind of chunky 1950s tortoiseshell or black plastic, real chunky eyeglasses. Tote bags, what we're seeing are two things. One is a tote, really, a satchel, the way a woman would wear a satchel. To my feeling, not terribly practical because you need to carry them with your hand, and that leaves only one hand for your cane or for navigating. So it is best to look at the next option, which is a messenger bag, and they're being done in leather and fabrics, and that is nice because it can be worn bandolero style across the body. Watches remain big and chunky, even with men's suits, you know, even more formal wear. If you can, keep a little sleek, thin watch for uh, formal wear. But if not, even day wear in business is these big kind of chunky, almost look like scuba diving watches. And then finally, Mike, which I thought would bring kind of a giggle, what we're seeing, and once again, this is on the runway or this is for people in the fashion industry or art and what have you, and they're brooches, and they're actually started on men's suits, very tweedy, kind of a dandy look from the uh, turn of the 20th century, and they're done in everything, primarily vintage. They came out of antique stores, feathers, uh, family crests, pins, you know, they, they look antique And this is really a way for men to have a little jewelry accessory. 
Another look that's coming back with regard to ties is a tie bar. And this is more of a dress-up, more of like a banking look, and that would be a pin with two little metal balls on either side, and it actually goes under the knot of your necktie. Now, that is tricky because there are some high-end shirts that actually have the holes in the shirt. So you have to be very, very careful because it's not a great idea to just have that bar go through the shirt. A man's necktie denotes his individuality and his social status. And it is um, one place that men can actually use an accessory and it can be age-appropriate, it can be situationally appropriate. You know, a bow tie, a silk bow tie, black bow tie is for black tie, uh, formal events. And then you can go all the way down to a knit, a tweedy, hand-knit tie for more casual. So, you know, with uh, various lengths, there's bow ties, colors, designs, and fabrics. The man's necktie is something that has uh, remained important, even though it's the bane of many men's existence to have to wear one every day, but uh, it is an important part of men's look. Visit Lynn at her website, lynncooper.us. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. And a big Panama with a purple hat band.